Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 28, Leviticus chapter 19, continued. We're going to continue today with Leviticus chapter 19. And if there is one single principle of God <clears throat> that the entire world is violated, and that is maybe the greatest single cause just outside of sin itself, generally, for the global chaos that, that we watch on our evening news and read about in our newspaper and experience in our own lives, it's the one that we began discuss the last time we met and we're going to take it up again tonight. And that principle is at the heart of everything that God is and reflects in his very nature. And therefore, for us to violate it is to reject harmony with him. And the spiritual law I'm speaking of is that of dividing, electing, and separating. Expressing that in the negative, the law is that those who love the Lord are not to improperly mix things that are set aside for life with things that are set aside for destruction. We're not to cross God-erected boundaries and mix two things together that while each may be good and acceptable of themselves, they're to be kept separated. They're not to be combined. We're not to mix the holy with the unholy. We're not to mix the holy even with the common. We're certainly not to mix the clean with the unclean. Further, we're not to redesignate things that God has called evil as good and vice versa. We're not to replace God's laws with theological philosophies. To do any of these things is to create table. T-E-V-E-L, table. Which means confusion. And confusion is completely at odds with the Lord's attributes of wholeness and order. Confusion is the state of the whole world today, isn't it? And the cause of it all is improper mixing of things at many different levels. Let's refresh our memories by reading, rereading rather, a portion of Leviticus 19. Open your Bibles to Leviticus 19. And we're going to read from verse 19 on to the end. Observe my regulations. Don't let your livestock mate with those of another kind. Don't sow your field with two different kinds of grain. Don't wear a garment of cloth made with two different kinds of thread. If a man has sexual relations with a woman who is a slave intended for another man, she has neither been redeemed nor given her freedom, there's to be an investigation. Now, they're not to be put to death because she wasn't free. In reparation, he's to bring a ram as a guilt offering for himself to the entrance of the tent of meeting, the wilderness tabernacle, the temple. Okay. The priest will make atonement for him with the ram, 
of the guilt offering before Adonai for the sin he has committed, and he will be forgiven for the sin he's committed. Now, when you enter the land and plant various kinds of fruit trees, you're to regard its fruit as forbidden. For three years it'll be forbidden to you and not eaten. In the fourth year, all of its fruit will be holy for praising Adonai. But in the fifth year, you may eat its fruit so that it will produce even more for you. I'm Adonai, your God. Do not eat anything with blood. Do not practice divination or fortune telling. Don't round your hair at the temples or mar the edges of your beard. Don't cut gashes in your flesh when someone dies or tattoo yourself. I'm Adonai. Do not debase your daughter by making her a prostitute so that the land will not fall into prostitution and become full of shame. Keep my Sabbaths. Revere my sanctuary. I'm Adonai. Do not turn to spirit mediums or sorcerers. Don't seek them out to be defiled by them. I'm Adonai, your God. Stand up in the presence of a person with gray hair. Show respect for the old. You're to fear your God, I'm Adonai. If a foreigner stays with you in your land, do not do him wrong. Rather, treat the foreigner staying with you like the native born among you. You're to love him as yourself. For you were foreigners in the land of Egypt. I'm Adonai, your God. Don't be dishonest when measuring length, weight, or capacity. Rather, use an honest balance scale. Honest weights, an honest bushel dry measure, and an honest gallon liquid measure. I'm Adonai, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Observe all my regulations and rulings and do them. I'm Adonai, your God. The Hebrew word for this improper mixing of things, this crossing over of God's boundaries, is kilayim. Okay? And there have been profound writings by the ancient Hebrew sages on this, on this subject. Unfortunately, there's also been a lot of fanciful allegory. Now, kilayim, improper mixing, results in table, confusion. Okay. Leviticus 19.19 19 is, of course, not the only place in the Torah where specific edicts against kilayim is mandated. Deuteronomy 22 also adds, in some cases it just repeats, more examples of improper mixing that results in table. That is, kilayim always results, eventually, in confusion. Here's a couple of examples for you. Deuteronomy 22.5 A woman shall not wear man's clothing nor shall a man put on woman's clothing. Whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Deuteronomy 22.9 You shall not sow your vineyard with two kinds of seed, lest all the produce of the seed which you have sown and the increase of the vineyard become defiled. You shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. You shall not wear a mixed material of wool and linen together. Now I'd like to share with you the general understanding among the Hebrew sages of these underlying principles and problems with improper mixing, kilayim. To begin with, there are three types of mixing or hybridization, if you would, 
spoken of between Leviticus 19 and Deuteronomy 22. And first is the kind that's represented by sowing grain in a vineyard. Okay, this is generally what is meant by not sowing two types of seed together. Okay. This is considered the most extreme example. Right? And it produces the most serious results. When two species of plants are planted in super close proximity to one another, the result usually is that the roots become enmeshed. And each derives some part of its source of nourishment from the other. Now, it's not that the grape is going to start looking like barley and the barley is going to turn the color of ripening grapes. Okay? The outward physical characteristics don't necessarily visibly change. But several of the internal attributes can change. Taste, texture, aroma, a host of other changes can occur as a result of this crossing of boundaries. And as far as a category or a class of kilayim to too closely plant together two kinds of seeds, it's considered to be the same as interbreeding two different species of behemoth, domesticated farm animals, which of course is also prohibited. Now the second category of kilayim that the ancient sages delineated is represented by the prohibition against harnessing an ox and a donkey together, ostensibly to pull a cart or a plow. That is, the yoking together of two inherently different creatures for the purpose of using them to perform some kind of work. Okay. Here, the hybridization is not in any kind of biological mixing, but, but it's in mixing their action and their functions. Okay. The problem is in using two different species, each designed for different purposes, for some type of common work, presumably work that's suitable for one but not for the other. So it's not that the attributes of either species is somehow altered, it's that the function each was created to perform was altered okay, due to the improper mixing by men. The third category, illustrated by the wearing of clothing made from a mixture of wool and linen, is a kind of a middle ground, if you would, between the, the two extremes of the last two examples I just gave you. And even though on the one hand, the, the two fibers, wool and linen, come from entirely different sources, okay, they should not be woven together to produce something of a singular purpose. Okay. An important feature to note of each of these cases that we've gone over is that there's nothing inherently wrong or evil or unclean or abnormal about any of the species or of plants or animals individually that would make any of them taboo. It's when the God-ordained boundaries are crossed and two separate species are combined that the problem arises. And as when 
We discussed clean and unclean and found that clean animals were not inherently better. They weren't somehow more godly or more normal as compared to unclean animals. So it is with these forbidden mixtures. Linen and wool woven together don't produce a physically inferior cloth right, as compared to, say, pure linen or pure wool. And in fact, depending on one's taste, a wine made of certain grapes produced by having a certain variety of wheat or barley grow right underneath it and alongside that grapevine might actually be desirable. Rather, it is simply that God, it is God's sovereign decision as to what improper mixing consists of. We, we can search for the why of this all day long. And I promise you that most answers we'll ever come up with are going to be allegorical in nature and generally just pure guesses. Right? Because in most instances, Jehovah's not chosen to tell us the why behind his decision. And you know, that just bugs the living daylights out of man. So we continue this search for the why. And that leads to men then deciding that if they can find no rational, logical, scientific reason why, then there's really no good reason for us to obey that command in the first place. We see that reasoning in our era, particularly as concerns homosexuality and gay marriage. The question usually posed is, what harm does it cause? It's not like they can reproduce. Hmm? I mean, what two people do in private is here is their her own business. Besides, this was just an ancient taboo ignored, uh, obeyed by ignorant people that no longer has a place in modern society and in this enlightened world of the 21st century. I mean, if it were only the secular world arguing for that point of view, I don't think I'd be all that concerned. But sadly, more and more within the modern church, that stance, that same stance has been adopted. And in some cases, it has become quite literally church doctrine. Okay. Recall the great hand-wringing within the church over the selection of the newest pope. I don't know if you recall all that. But the big problem was that he was staunchly and openly anti-gay marriage and anti-abortion. And so a cry was set up around the world that how could a man like this ever lead the Catholic Church? Or how about this emerging battle over the next election for the President of the United States whereby at least the current leading Republican candidate is pro-choice, pro-gay and his main opponent is a Mormon. The church is in a complete quandary on how to react to this. Right? Because it has so mixed itself with the ways of the world and decided that the old laws of the Old Testament are dead and gone and with it went the morality that governed it and us. We don't even know how to make choices anymore. 
My advice is to abandon the search for why. Instead, focus on the patterns and how one pattern intertwines with the next. Then your understanding of who God is, how he operates, what he expects from us is going to be increased and our frustration and our doubts will decrease. Now before we continue with more commands in Leviticus 19, let me end this discussion on improper mixing that results in confusion. In Hebrew, kilayim, that results in table by showing you something in the New Testament that's a prime example of kilayim in action. And it's a statement of St. Paul that has to be one of the most quoted but probably most under misunderstood. And it's found in 2 Corinthians 6.14. And there it says, Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship hath righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion hath light with darkness? Now Paul, it might surprise you to know, was not making up a new theology. He was simply stating the Torah principle of Kilayim, no improper mixing. Actually, he was referring directly to Deuteronomy 22.10 where it says that an ox and a donkey aren't to be brought into union to pull a plow. Here in 2 Corinthians, righteousness, he says, should never be mixed with unrighteousness, nor should light be mixed with darkness. Here's the thing. Paul was doing what Jesus did and what we should seek to do, which is to reapply and not reinterpret the Torah for our day. See, Paul takes a command. Do not unequally yoke an ox and a donkey. And he takes it from the purely physical, earthbound realm into the spiritual. Okay. How is that so? Because Paul equates the principle of unequal yoking of physical things like donkeys and oxes, to the unequal yoking of spiritual things, like righteousness and unrighteousness. For a believer, just as for the Hebrew, there is a strictly defined boundary established by God between righteousness and unrighteousness, lightness and darkness. And remember, light and darkness, as we saw in Genesis, or and Hosheth, are spiritual in their essence. And neither the physical nor the spiritual boundaries are to be blurred. They're not to be crossed. Okay. Or, that's improper mixture. That's the meaning of be ye not unequally yoked. In modern terms, it simply means do not be improperly mixed. That's all it's getting at. Now let's move on to verse 20. It changes subjects. Now I hope you're all beginning to get used to hearing the rather frank and explicit talk about sexual relations in the Torah because we're going to encounter it again and again. And verses 20, 21, 22 is one complete thought. It's all about the same situation. 
Okay. And since it has ascended to the lofty status as being one of the 613 laws of Torah, we should probably, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> we should probably assume that the, seri- the scenario that's presented in these three verses, 20, 21, 22, is something that happened with regularity among the Hebrews. Now, let's take a closer look, <clears throat> because this story gives us a rather interesting aspect of Hebrew society of the 14th century before Christ. The gravity of the situation is obscured because the differences between Hebrew culture at that time and and, and Western culture in our day. So allow allow me to explain what's going on here. These verses ordain that a man is not to have sexual relations with a slave girl if she has been previously promised to another man. Now, here's the deal. In this case, the slave girl is a Hebrew girl owned by a Hebrew man. Most of the slave girls owned by Israelites, what we call slave girls, how we translate the slave girls, were in fact Israelites, Israelite girls. Why would that be so? Because the ordinance of Exodus 21, 7 through 11, makes it perfectly lawful for a father to sell his daughter into what we would call bond servitude. Okay, Exodus 21, 7 says this. If a man sells his daughter as a female slave, she's not to go free as the male slaves do. If she is displeasing in the eyes of her master who designated her for himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He does not have authority to sell her to foreign people because that would be unfair to her. And if he designates her for his own son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes to himself another woman, he may not reduce her food her clothing, and her conjugal rights. And if he will not do these three things for her, then she shall go away for nothing without payment of money. Now, the selling of this young Israelite girl by her father to an Israelite man was usually the result of the family being poverty-stricken or the family being in debt and the girl was the payment for that debt. Okay. But we, ha- we should not draw this mental picture of a girl in chains and tied to a stake every evening so that she can't run away. Nor of a girl who is mistreated or starved or beaten or even used as an object of sexual pleasures by the man who now owns her. The law insisted that she be treated very well. So here we have the case of a young Hebrew girl, a child by our standards, really, sold to a Hebrew man. And when the girl matured and got to the marrying age, generally around 15 years old, the man who owned her had an obligation to either marry her himself, give her to his son as a wife, or allow her to be redeemed by someone else. Now, this particular kind of redemption usually meant that if a man who was looking for a wife 
wanted to marry this slave girl, the slave owner was required to give, give her to him, but had a price, a redemption price. Okay. The procedure was that this interested young man would bargain with the slave owner over the redemption price of the girl. And once agreed to, the girl was now legally designated to her future husband. And a period of time usually passed before that future husband brought all of the redemption money to the slave owner so that he could have her as his wife. And during that time, the slave girl continued to live with the slave owner, although she had been sold. It was kind of the ancient Hebrew version of a layaway plan. <laughs> Legally, though, she remained an unmarried girl and a slave until all the money was paid. Now, if another, a different man, comes along and he seduces that girl, ah, there's a problem. The problem was that the girl was now damaged goods. The future husband was expecting a virgin. But since she was no longer a virgin, there was no way that the future husband would have accepted her. He would have canceled the whole deal. He would have canceled the marriage. He'd called the whole thing off, which means that the, that the girl's slave owner would have been out the money that he had expected. And the end of verse 20 says that the result of all this is that there shall be an indemnity. Now, don't go blind looking in your Bibles for this word indemnity because it's typically not there. Okay? Instead, like in my complete Jewish Bible, the Bibles will say punishment or it'll say inquiry or investigation or even inquisition or something like that. Hebrew scholars have looked on that translation with suspicion for centuries said it makes no sense. And w w within the Hebrew cultural context of that era, none of those words made any sense according to the situation. And over the last few years, as the study of language cognates pertaining to Hebrew has progressed, the true meaning of many odd and rare Hebrew words have finally come into better focus. Now, a cognate is a 50-cent word all right, this simply means it's a word in one language that's very closely related to a word in another language. Okay, so that if one can be certain of the meaning of a word in an older but related language, that meaning can generally be transferred to its cognate in its newer and sister language. And we have that exact situation here. Because the Hebrew word in question here appears here and here alone in all the Bible. But a cognate for it has been discovered. The Hebrew word that's been typically translated as punishment or investigation or inquiry is bikorit. Bikorit. And what language experts now know is that many Hebrew words are taken from the Akkadian language. In Akkadian, we find the word bakuru. And bakuru means to make good on a claim. That is, to indemnify something. 
And indemnity is a word that most of us Floridians are familiar with because of our frequent hurricane damage. Because it pertains to homeowner's insurance. In legalese, a person who buys insurance is indemnified against certain risks and losses. They're very well spelled out. It's now generally agreed that Bikorit in the Hebrew is the Hebrew cognate of the Akkadian Bakuru. So the idea that's being expressed here in our story is that a man who seduces this slave girl who had been promised to another man for a redemption price, he was now responsible to pay the full agreed to price that had been negotiated between the slave owner and that future husband who's now pulled out of the deal. The slave owner would have confronted the seducer, made the claim, and demanded reparations. He would have filed an insurance claim against this guy. Now, it's interesting to note that it was not so much the future husband who was wronged in this situation. It was considered that the slave owner was wronged. Because he would have been out the money promised for the girl that he owned. Therefore, the seducer had to pay reparations to the slave owner. How about that future husband? Eh, he was simply out of luck. Okay, the future husband merely lost a fiancé, which means he'd have to go to all the trouble to find another in the story. That's the way it was looked at. But that wasn't the end of the story for the guy who seduced the girl, who had already been promised to another man. According to verse 21, that seducer, in addition, had to make a sacrifice at the altar. Specifically, he had to make what's called an asham. We studied that now. An asham sacrifice. A reparation offering at the tabernacle. Because not only had he committed an indiscretion that damaged and devalued the property of a slave owner, that girl, he'd also trespassed against God by violating a command. And because an asham was established in order to make atonement for committing a sinful act, that was pretty, pretty expensive sacrifice usually. So the seducer paid quite a price for his lust. And by the way, um, he doesn't get the girl. He pays the price. He pays the price to the slave owner. He pays the price for the sacrifice, but he doesn't get the girl. Okay. Now, just a small but interesting, I think, glimpse into that Israelite culture a long ago. As we move into verse 23... We get into another one of these laws that's not going to take effect for quite a while because it involves farming. All right. Something, of course, that would not take place until Israel settled in Canaan. They didn't stop and farm out in the wilderness. The law is that when Israel plants fruit trees, and in the Bible this really means any kind of tree that bears anything edible, whether it's nuts, dates, oranges, doesn't matter. And the deal is that for the first three years after a tree is planted, none of the tree's produce can be harvested and eaten. Now, I'm not going to go too deeply into detail here, but when one takes the, 
original Hebrew literally. The idea is not so much about a prohibition against picking and eating the fruit, but instead destroying it. Rather, it's about trimming. It's all about pruning the tree. In other words, it's because pruning is necessary for a tree to mature and be fully productive. And as a result of that pruning, at first, the fruit's lost. So the first three years, these young branches have to be heavily pruned. And the fruit that might otherwise have grown on them will be lost. But that's so that the trees will be even more productive for a longer term. Then in the fourth year, we're told, a good harvest can finally be expected. But wouldn't you know, that entire first legal harvested fruit can't be used from the person who owns it. They have to give it all to God. All of it is an offering to God. In other words, in that fourth year, the harvest that's finally allowed is considered holy, set apart to Jehovah, so it's given to him. What this amounted to was that in some undefined way it was offered to God in some kind of a celebration. Assuredly, it was eaten by somebody during the celebration, probably by the Levites and priests. The fruit of the fourth year was consecrated and set apart. It was holy property. It belonged to God, which meant that some of it was burned up and the remaining holy portion went to the priesthood. But in the fifth year, normal harvesting could commence. Now, what is the purpose of this five-year progressive procedure? We're told in verse 25 very plainly, it's so that the yield of the tree harvest will increase. This is seen as another of those reality of duality situations. That is, there was a horticultural reality in that by allowing the trees to be pruned, without harvesting fruit for the first three years, the trees would become better producers over their lifetime. On the other hand, from a a spiritual standpoint, by being obedient to this command of God, the Lord would see to it that the yield was supernaturally increased as a blessing for obedience. But the increase of the harvest was not the only aspect of the act that would be blessed. Shalom, we're told, was also increased. Shalom, when taken as an overall state of well-being, joy, peace, health, grace from God... That's something only the Lord can give. The pagan Canaanites and the God-fearing Israelites might each receive a similar amount of fruit from following this practice of pruning and not harvesting until the fourth year. But only the one who loves God can receive shalom. And that's the greatest blessing of them all. Now someone last week asked a great question. Perhaps is less a question and more the expression of a thought. In that can we say 
that those who love and obey God will reap reward, earthly reward, while those who do not will not. Without doubt, the scripture makes it clear that those who follow Torah, who obey God, and who make Yeshua Lord of their lives will see increase of the fruit of their lives as a blessing. And for those who don't, blessing will be withheld. So it is advantageous to us to be obedient to God that even in our earthly lives we'll be blessed with better lives. But that concept can also be easily misunderstood. For instance, if the Canaanites who remained in the land after Israel conquered it watched what these Israelites did with their fruit trees and then saw what happened, my gosh, look at that great harvest. And they emulated it. They saw that by following those same practices that they themselves, the Canaanites, would have better fruit crops. That's probably what would happen, even though they didn't worship Jehovah. The Israelites, on the other hand, while receiving a better fruit crop, would also receive spiritual blessings. But that's because their motives for doing what they did was correct. In my example, the Canaanites just wanted more fruit. They did whatever it took to get it. Israel sought to be obedient to God and the result was abundance. They both did the same things as regarded those fruit trees, but Israel received God's blessings. Canaanites didn't. Why? Motive. So it is that we can see at times the most greedy, unkind, ungodly people in this world sometimes have what appears to be great success. Amazing lives. Often by following, unbeknownst to them even, scriptural principles of business and stewardship it happens. But that's not the same thing as receiving the Lord's blessing. It is the Lord's blessing we should seek. Because often what appears to be prosperity and and abundance is just fool's gold. It's the devil's trap. I mean, I tell you this because it adds another small piece to the puzzle of understanding the principle of humans having an evil inclination and a good inclination residing within us. Doing what seems to be good is not good if the motivation is wrong. Good people who do good things but don't know God are actually doing evil in God's eyes. This is because their motives are not God-directed, they're self-directed. And this is why it's so important to have Yeshua as our Lord because the only way even our good inclinations can be properly channeled and guided is by Him. Without Him, even our attempt at good is evil. Without Him, our motives by default will be wrong. Well, verse 26 repeats the law That a Hebrew should not eat anything with its blood. Simply, they shouldn't drink animal blood or make food out of animal blood. And this is also necessitated 
that an animal be killed and its flesh prepared in a certain way with its blood drained fully out from the meat. But please remember that this law about blood means a whole lot more than only being prohibited from eating animal blood. Okay. How, where, and why an animal is killed is also part of the picture. As of this time, here in Leviticus, the only place a domestic animal could be killed for any reason was at the tabernacle, at the altar, even if it, that, that animal was meant intended just for food. Later on in the same verse, the rule against practicing divination or fortune-telling was also repeated. That is, they're not to practice magic. But you know, as we're going to find throughout the Old Testament, the Hebrews were drawn like a moth to a flame to the occult by the evil inclinations that lurked within them. And they were severely disciplined by Yehovah for these things. Invariably, the purpose of divination and fortune-telling is to know the future. That's what it's always about. And Israel's neighbors, as did all known cultures of that era, make abundant use of the occult. I mean, knowing the future has always been and is always going to be something that mankind desires. God, however, says that he'll provide whatever part of the future he wants us to know by means of his prophets. But all in all, God's prophets actually provided very little new information for Israel. When God didn't speak to the people through the prophets, then the people were expected to proceed in faith by following God's clearly defined laws and principles as set down on Mount Sinai. We believers are to do exactly the same thing. You know, we only occasionally get a direct answer to a direct problem from the Holy Spirit. It's rare. Far more often, we're to keep going forward in faith while referring to the unchanging scriptures for our direction. Even though it would seem to be a whole lot easier if God would just tell us what he wants us to do. Well, next in verse... 26 is this strange injunction against rounding the hair at the temples of your head or tearing out the hair of your beard or gashing oneself as a mourning practice or getting tattooed. Now, all of these things were standard Canaanite cultural norms. And in fact, we need to keep in mind that most of the prohibitions that we're going to find in the law are usually there to combat some pagan practice of some pagan nation or another. That these, these laws against these sorts of things weren't theoretical or hypothetical issues that God was addressing. These things were occurring. It's just that God wanted the Hebrews to avoid them. And verse 29 is a little different than it might appear on the surface. It says, you're not to defile your daughter by making her a prostitute. And this, so that the land will not fall into prostitution. Well, what this is actually referring to is religious prostitution. Another standard Canaanite practice. In other words, what this law is about is that a man was not to offer his daughter 
to a priest for a religious ceremony that involved sex acts. Nor was he to sell his daughter for general prostitution in order to obtain money to buy a sacrificial animal to sacrifice at the temple. The warning is, which by the way, this, these were all common practices of that era. Okay. The warning is that if Israel began to drift into this ceremonial prostitution, then the promised land itself would fall into depravity. It would become unclean. Now, I've mentioned on occasion that in God's eyes, the land is always connected with the people who occupy the land. The people and the land are organically intertwined. So often in the scriptures, as it is here, the term the land actually refers in a larger sense to the place and the people as one complete entity. Okay. Notice that immediately following this prohibition against sacred sex, God says, keep my Sabbaths, revere my sanctuary. Now this Hebrew literary structure is a way of indicating to avoid the one and instead do the other. Don't bring a prostitute into my sanctuary. Instead, obey my Sabbaths and revere my sanctuary. That's the idea of it. And by the way, Israel did all these horrible things against God and more, which is why they were eventually expelled from the land and scattered throughout the earth. Well, the prohibition of verse 31 is to avoid spirit mediums and sorcerers. Some translations say to avoid familiar spirits or ghosts. And the idea here is very simple. Do not attempt communication with the spirits of the dead. So what are we to make of this? Is communication with the dead even possible? Well, the Bible tells us precious little about what happens after death. Matter of fact, the Old Testament says practically nothing on the subject. As I've mentioned on several occasions, there is absolutely no concept of dying and going to heaven in the Torah or anywhere else in the Old Testament. It doesn't exist. It's not as though the Hebrews didn't wonder about death and dying and worry about what would happen afterwards. But just like all humans, they were and we are concerned with death and what lies ahead. But we need to be very cautious that just because God warns his people against hiring mediums and sorcerers to conjure up spirits of the dead, which is the meaning of ghosts, in the sense of ghosts being the spirits of dead people as being real. Rather, the problem from a scriptural standpoint seems to be that a person who believes that they can contact the spirit of a dead person winds up actually communicating with a demon who's masquerading himself as, a, as that person and he's doing Satan's bidding. It's kind of a bait and switch play by the devil. 
A demon is not the spirit of a dead person. A demon, according to my best Bible understanding, is formerly an angel of heaven who fell from grace due to their loyalty to Satan and his rebellion. Since that day of Satan's rebellion, the number of demons was fixed. As many fell on that day exist today. Not one has been added, not one has been subtracted. The subject of death and the spirits of the dead is enormous. We could spend days on it. Suffice it to say, the beliefs on this subject, even within the Hebrew culture, evolved and morphed. And they were never completely uniform. Okay. Any more than, frankly, afterlife beliefs are universal within Christianity. They're not. Okay. I, I really want to take sufficient time to sum this all up. Because not only is the subject interesting on its face, but also it is pertinent to our faith and understanding what actually does come after physical death. So we'll start that subject next week.